Wow, isn't that great? Ooh, man, I'm reminded about how much I cannot dance right now. Man, what does the Bible say about dancing? Something bad. No, I'm kidding. Oh, man. Man, that's so cool. I love that we can just have freedom like that in this place to do things like that and honor the Lord with creative works like that. I love kids, too. So cute. It's good to see you guys. We have a friend of, a, of ours is getting married uh, tomorrow, so I feel a little naked here without some of our core people usually, but we'll get through it. But I'm excited to teach tonight. And um, if you have, uh, if you're joining us for the first time tonight, you're jumping kind of late into a series that hopefully uh, you get to check out some of the earlier messages, but there's some really thorny passages in the Bible. Thorny is kind of my way of saying it about women and women's authority and what they can and can't do. And so uh, you're catching us three weeks into it. And so this is the third. And uh, I was hoping, hoping that tonight would be the final night, but uh, I don't think we'll quite get there, but that's all right. It's going to be awesome. So let's just pray tonight, and we're going to open up the Word and have God's revelation on these passages. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, first we just say that we are not afraid of your Word. Lord, we are not afraid of what is on the text. We are not afraid of passages that we maybe have never known what to do with before. And so tonight, Lord, we just go ransoming these passages, maybe that have been used against many people that we know, including us. And Lord, we just also declare that there be a revelation over our thoughts and our beliefs and just the way in which we approach um, the topic of women and their the equality that they have in the kingdom with us men and as a family, Lord, we just recognize that. So God, we just pray right now, right now that you would just uh, clear our minds, Lord, and you would allow us to get what you have for us in the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to give you the catch-up real quick for where we left off. The very first week we talked about the original curse in the Garden of Eden at the fall was against women that men shall dominate over you. And we understand that the curse was broken at the cross. That Jesus came and paid for it all. We, we understand that. And that's a, a topic that some people have emailed me about. Like, hey, I want to talk about the curse. Is the curse really gone? I fully believe the curse is gone. Because we, uh, at the fall, we had the law. We're now free from the law. We have sin. It says now we're dead to sin. Satan was said to be the ruler. And Jesus says, I've given you all authority and all rule. And so now we stand in a position where we actually have, in the kingdom, the effects of the curse have been abolished. And so we need to understand that, but we also need to understand that the passages in the Bible, there are many passages in the Bible that it is impossible for you to universally, literally apply every passage to every circumstance. And we found that there's many passages sometimes in the Bible that we need to understand what is the context that's going on in the scriptures because we can't just blindly apply everything that's written without understanding what was going on. For example, we talked about how forever the church was endorsing slavery because the Bible said, slaves, obey your masters. And we understand that God uses situations as the backdrop to speak narratively about principles. We also last week or two weeks ago studied Jesus and his role with women. And we understood that in Judaism culture that women weren't allowed to be seen with men. They weren't allowed to speak to men. They weren't allowed to touch men. All sorts of crazy stuff. And when you read what Jesus did alongside women, he is radically breaking every law ever invented associated with women. 
And so the context of what Jesus came to do, he's the biggest women's liberator ever, and we have to understand what happened when he came and what he did. And then we look at Paul's epistles, and who happens to be the single author in almost all the Bible who restricts women's involvement, seemingly. And Paul wrote to nine churches, but there are three letters in which there are passages that restrict women. I'm going to read them for you, so you have a fresh memory on here. This is 1 Corinthians 11. It says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying and prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or head shaved. Let her cover her head. It's intense. Passage number two. A little shorter. This is 1 Corinthians 14. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Ouch. First Timothy 2, 11. A woman must quietly re- receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Some intense passages. There's one in Titus 2 um, also, but we won't go into that one. I'll explain why here in a minute. But how many letters did, did Paul write? Nine. How many cities or letters did he write in which they were restricted? Three. He wrote to Timothy, the leader of the church of Ephesians. He wrote into the Corinthians. And he wrote to Titus, who is the leader of the church in the island of Crete. And last time we met, Corinth, Ephesus, and Crete. The three cities in which Paul writes and restricts women. And notice that those letters, sometimes Paul says, share these letters with other churches. Those three letters, he didn't say that. But there's something in common that those three cities had across them all, and it is that they all worshipped female deities. And the, the letters that Paul wrote restricting women, those cities were the ones that worshipped female deities. I'm going to give you a couple background context for it. So Corinth, you can still find the ruins of the temple of Aphrodite there. Corinth as a city had over 1,000 cult prostitutes. 1,000 cult prostitutes. It was on the coast, and it catered to sailors from all around the region that would come by and stop in, and, and they were you know, traveling salesmen, and they would hook up with one of these cult prostitutes. And it was synonymous for sexual immorality throughout the world. And specifically, the temple of Aphrodite is what gave Corinth its reputation for gross immorality, and it was a place for worshipers of the female deity, and they performed outrageous sex orgies and sex acts as acts of worship to Aphrodite. So we do music, and they would express worship in another way. So kind of crazy, right? They worshiped Aphrodite by outrageous orgies, sex acts, crazy stuff. I mean, we were talking like, this is intense stuff. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Ephesus was the home of Greek goddess Artemis or Diana. Now, she was the combination of both the virgin goddess of the hunt and the Anatolian goddess of Cybele. 
I think that's how you say that. Sometimes she's known as the great mother. Cybele was associated with the earth and with fertility. Yes, somehow Artemis and Cybele was associated with virginity and fertility. I don't know how those two things go together, but somehow they did. And Artemis had a crown on her head signifying rulership and eggs all around her signifying fertility. Let's look now at the relationship of the goddess Artemis within the early church. And we actually get a little glimpse in Acts chapter 19. For a man, Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen, meaning he was making a lot of business and a lot of money. That he gathered together with workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul... It's called out by name. This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be disregarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We get a little glimpse of what was happening here in Ephesus with Artemis and the rage of protecting the goddess was there. Artemis and the, the cultural goddess there, what not only was cultural, it was spiritual, it was financial, even it was vocational. And we see the direct battle that Paul named had against Artemis and the culture there that worshipped the deity. Now the island of Crete, it's in Greek mythology. I remember Greek mythology like that much from like grade school and it was so boring. But um, there was the birthplace of Zeus was there. He was king of the gods. Um, and it was off the southern coast of Crete where the nymph Calypso, the female deity, supposedly lived. And there's a lot of other stories, many intricacies to it with King Odysseus and Calypso. And that's where finally Zeus steps in. A whole bunch of stuff that I've saved you about an hour. So, but just trust me that female deities were at the center of it all. And they're a major part of Cretan culture. And Paul, he spent time in Crete. And he wrote about Crete and said this in Titus 1. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in their faith. There's a passage in Titus 2 that talks about women um, being subject and being obedient. And so what this is basically saying is Paul's like, you guys are all messed up. You are going around crazy. And there's teachers trying to get the faith all riled up and teaching crazy things. And so uh, Paul comes like a really like, you know, be really stern with them. So let's dive into a couple of the tough scriptures. I've been teasing this for weeks. Let's, the first two of them are, are in 1 Corinthians. And I had actually a larger study that talks about 1 Corinthians at large and like the nature of like the tone and all that other stuff. I'm going to distill it into just a few points to save us another week because I want to really get into these. What you need to know about 1 Corinthians. 
Here's everything you need to know about 1 Corinthians as it's associated with women in this topic. Number one is that Paul's letters contain his answers to many questions, issues, and topics written to him. Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians is actually a response to many of the questions that people were sent. And for the majority of the time, we infer his answer based, um, we infer the question based on his answer. Imagine someone taking your iPhone and only having your responses and none of the dialogue from somebody else. Be kind of like funny, like uh, emoticons now, LOL, I, I don't know what this means. Like, you'd be really confused, right? And so Paul in the scriptures tries to do his best to kind of address things. But a few times he references that the fact that he's answering questions, he gives us clues. Here's one example in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. He says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, if you apply the Bible literally, figuratively, universally, and in every situation, I'm guessing a lot of us sinned today and broke the Bible. But we have to understand the context and the conversation going on there. The second thing we need to know about 1 Corinthians is that Paul, throughout the entire book, everyone say entire, throughout the entire book of 1 Corinthians, Paul equalizes authority between men and women. Now, remember, I shared last time about women that they were possessions in Judaism. They had no authority. They could not speak. If a man came to a house, the woman had to go in another room. They were reduced to serving the men night and day for cooking, cleaning, everything. all that stuff. Sounds amazing, right? No. It sounds terrible. But the women had no choice in anything. Some of you guys get my humor. But this is what Paul says in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is a radical departure from the notion that wives were possessions of husbands. And this is in direct conflict to the really tough passage, which is used almost all the time, which is 1 Timothy, that women shall not have authority over man. Here in chapter 7, Paul is saying uh, wives have authority over husbands and their bodies. Well, right there we have the same author having conflicting viewpoints. And in fact, Paul also addresses women who are married to unsaved men that they should teach them and lead them to Christ, that they should not divorce them, but in fact, the women should leave their unsaved husbands to Christ, say in this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 16. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Again, the same author in, of 1 Timothy who says, I do not allow a woman to teach a man. Here saying, woman, teach a man your husband so he gets saved. What do we do? It's like another direct conflict. Number three about the epistles, and particularly 1 Corinthians, is Paul's letter are not written just to men. Some people think that Paul is just writing to men at Corinth, but he was writing to men and women. All the scriptures we just reviewed just there, Paul is addressing both sexes. He addresses women and wives in first person, saying, How do you know, O wife? The letter reveals that the Corinthians, not Paul, have a two-tier structure of how they view culture. Why? Because they're asking, don't men only have authority over the women and the women have no authority over us? And he's like, no, the woman has authority over you and you have authority over women if you're in marriage. And then they're asking about, well, 
maybe if an unsaved man, the, the wife should just, you know, stick through it. And he's like, no, like the, the wife might save the husband. The fourth and final thing we need to know about 1 Corinthians is that Paul is bringing order to how men and women do public ministry. Chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Everyone say all persons. How many know that when you say all persons, you don't mean all men? Like gender men. (laughs) Verse 7, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Everyone say common good. How do you know that the common good also includes men and women? So here we know that all persons, it does not just mean only men. And the common good does not mean only men. So we know that the New Testament at large, including 1 Corinthians, which we'll get to a restricted pass about women, the New Testament empowers women. One of the very first mentions of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament in Acts is this Acts chapter 2 verse 17. Remember, At this time, this was written, women were not permitted to speak. This is what it says about the Holy Spirit in which Jesus is bringing. It says that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. How many know that a daughter is a woman? (laughs) Going real deep. How many know it's really hard to prophesy if you're not allowed, if you're not permitted to speak? I prophesied by myself. No. He's like, I intend you to speak out. So imagine the outrage. When here comes the Christ, the Holy Spirit's here, and you've been in a culture that has suppressed, limited, and basically eliminated any involvement of women at all from anything about God. And the very first mention is the Holy Spirit says that your daughters will prophesy. And we just pass on by it. Oh, that's interesting. I love you guys. I'll hand you some money later. No, I'm kidding. Also, the Bible supports the office of a prophet being a woman. Paul in chapter 4, he talks, uh, chapter 4 of Ephesians, it's a very popular passage that we teach about the fivefold ministry. It says there are pastors, prophets, evangelists, um, apostles, and teachers. That there's these different offices in which we build up the church an office. It's a difference between I can prophesy and someone being the office of a prophet, meaning you operate in a prophetic role. That's your office. Acts chapter 2, it says, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of that dude, who of the tribe of Asher was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after marriage. So the Bible affirms the office of a prophet. Paul himself in Ephesians says that we build the church through apostles and prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers. Philip the evangelist had four daughters who also prophesied and who were prophets. And there was a female disciple in Acts named Joppa or Joppa, one of those two. So when we have a holistic view of the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, we see this radical empowerment of women So what do we do with Paul in a few cities empowering women, the New Testament empowering women, and then we find Paul writing some passages restricting women. So let's break down the first passage. And the first passage about men being the head of women and that funky passage about women having shaved heads and all that stuff. So to free up this passage, 
and we're going to redeem each of these. We'll get as far as we can tonight. Is to read it in greater, fuller context. I'm going to give it to you. It's 1 Corinthians, again, 11. This is 2 through 16. Hang in there. It's a little bit wordy, but we'll get through it. Now, I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to their traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Everyone say man. And the man is the head of, of a woman. Everyone say woman. And God is the head of Christ. Everyone say Christ. Man is the head of woman and God is the head of Christ. It says every man who has something on his head while Praying and prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying and prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if, but it, but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought to not have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but for woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the women, or woman, sorry, ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's a whole other topic. However, verse 11, in the Lord... There is neither, everyone say neither, woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Again, offensive, radical language here. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given for her covering, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. We have a lot there. I hope you could see the dialogue. In there is the question, and in there is his, his answer. But there's a few key things we need to know about this, this passage is that when it says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Here's, we're going to get down a little bit in the weeds here. There's one word for man and husband, and it is the word aner. And there's one word for wife and woman, and it is gune. One word. They don't, there's no Greek word for wife that's different from the Greek word woman. Are you guys with me? There, there's one word for both, okay? So if you are a Bible translator, you're a scholar, you have to decide which one you're going to use. You have to look at the context and think which one is he meaning. Now, if you have a worldview in which every man is dominant over every woman, you translate that word as woman, not wife. Are you with me? But if you believe that we are co-heirs and co-reigners with God, then you translate this word as wife and husband. About one-third of the translations of the Bible use husband and wife there, where we just read man and woman. And if you think, um, well, let's just look at it. If, if we take one of those three translations, which are um, the message, ESV, God's word, CJB, a couple others, but look, look at this. If, if we just change that Greek word from woman 
and man to husband and wife. Look what it says. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every husband. And the husband is the head of a wife. And God is the head of Christ. How many of you know that saying husband is the head of a wife is much different than saying man is the head of a woman? It removes the obvious blanket restriction and relates the order of marriage to the importance between God the Father and Christ. And it changes the entire scope of that passage. It's no longer about men and women, it's about husbands and wives. And it makes perfect, perfect sense when you keep reading and you encounter the other passage that says, however, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. It should say, however, in the Lord neither is wife independent of husband, nor is husband independent of wife. Which is completely consistent as the Bible teaches that you are one flesh, husbands and wives. It makes total sense in context. Okay, so Paul is really speaking in this context about husbands and wives. But this passage right here, husbands and wives, should make every female in this room rejoice. Every female in this room should be like, this is awesome, yes! Here's why. God is the head of Christ just like husband is the head of wife. Now, all you women are hearing like, husband's the head of wife. You should really be focusing on God is the head of Christ. Just as, and then you think of husband as the head of wife. Let's look at the relationship between God the Father and Christ. Ephesians 1 says, He raised him, that's Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Christ submitted to God, and God used his own authority to raise Christ up even above himself. Let me say that again. Husbands are to wives as God is to Christ. What did God do? God used his authority to elevate Christ above all rule and all of authority, even above himself. He raised him up. So, if you're one of these Bible thumping, like, I believe, you know, in the Bible and women should be down there. Like, are you using your authority to liberate and raise up and elevate women? Or are you using the Bible to reduce, oppress, and suppress women? And then people who like to throw around, like, the Bible, like, and talk about women being, uh, didn't Jesus make it, like, ridiculously clear that the greatest among you are to be servants of all? It's just fascinating to me that we can invoke the name of Jesus to suppress women when it basically says that husbands are to wives as God is to Christ and what God does, he elevated. He raised up Christ and that is a call for husbands. It's a call for our church. It's a call for mankind in ministry to raise our ladies up. Now what about the praying and prophesying for women with shaved heads? Kind of weird. Well, first, let's acknowledge that Paul, again, is referencing women prophesying. And how many know you can't prophesy in your head and have it be effective and fruitful for everybody? Not very much. So, how is a woman to prophesy she's not allowed to speak in public? Well, of course. As we pull these pieces together, we were like, of course. It's impossible. 
So certainly women are not just supposed to be prophesying to women only. So with 100% certainty, we can know that Paul is given instructions for women to be activated in ministry, prophesying with other people of both genders, hearing, usually in public. How do we know it's in public? In Corinth, remember, it's the home to cult prostitutes of Aphrodite. Remember that? A thousand cult prostitutes. Does anyone know how a cult prostitute identified themselves? A shaved head. A shaved head. Yes, you know that. Well, yell louder. <laughs> a shaved head is how you identify as a cold prostitute in Corinth. Women took great pride and, and pleasure in the fact that they could control men and their desires by their sexuality. And to show it off, they would shave their heads and rebuking the norms and say, we have this authority, it doesn't matter. Another thing is that shaving heads was also a sign of an immoral woman. If a woman in Corinth was caught in adultery, they would shave her head. So shaved heads for women symbolized either that you were a cold prostitute or that you had really messed up and gotten in a lot of trouble. And in Corinthian culture, what you did with your head represented what was about you, who you were, what you do, what you did. Now, we're all way too young to remember the 60s, including myself, hallelujah. But in the 60s, if you had long hair, it was like with 99% certainty that you smoked pot, listened to Jimi Hendrix, and were about peace, love, and against the establishment. Like, you could almost, like, detail all that about long hair on men. And now it's like, we got just as long hair on our beards as on our heads. It's like, it doesn't even matter anymore. So in today's culture, it's no longer symbolic, but in Corinth, it was all symbolic. It meant everything. And so what Paul is saying is that they can pray and prophesy in public, providing that they are in right relationship with their leadership regarding their head, because the obvious and dangerous cultural connection would be drawn. Let me say that again. Paul is saying, women, go be powerful. Do amazing things. But think about the culture you're in because if you have a shaved head, they're going to get the wrong message. It's like I've set up a system for you not to be discounted if you happen to have a bummer haircut so you can still be effective in prophecy. He's wanting them to be effective in prophecy but to say, but in order for people to hear you, we kind of need to figure out this cultural issue here. I don't know what the letter that was written into Paul in this instance is like, Paul, we have all these women who've shaved their head. They're neither prostitutes nor sexual with other people. What do we do? And he's probably like, just make sure their heads are covered. I don't know. Like he's, he's wanting them to be effective. There's a powerful lesson in here that we should not let our freedom permit us to become a cultural stumbling block. What we should all take from this is not, whoa, what do we do with women? It's that we are liberated people free from the law and we have total freedom, but we need to understand the culture and the context in which we operate in order to be effective. Paul's saying, if you do not have context for culture, it doesn't matter what you say because people are going to discount you before you even open your mouth. And furthermore, Paul instructs men and women, as we'll see, to earnestly desire the gifts so we know without a shadow of a doubt that women in the Corinthian church were actually encouraged, taught, and exhorted to pray and, pro and prophesy in public. And so it makes no sense 
for Paul in, one, in basically two passages in all the book that he would spend the entire book liberating women and then two verses restricting them. So the pretext to chapter 14, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we've been, all this has been mostly in 1 Corinthians. Uh, 14 says he does not allow them to speak in church. That's verse 34 in chapter 14. But let me read to you what starts in chapter 14. So restricted verse 34, right, over here. We're going to go chapter 14, verse 1 and 5. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now I wish that that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would all prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Again, women, instructions for prophesying. Why is it important that we prophesy so that the church may receive edifying? Are you with me? This is chapter 14. What's the restrictive verse? Chapter 34. So, all prophesy, please, to edify the church. Verse 1 and 5. Restrictive, scary verse coming up. Verse 34. So, let's just jump into verse 34. I'm going to end with this. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. But the women are to keep silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject to themselves, just as the law, everyone say law, also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husband at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Paul, before encountering Christ, what did, who was Paul? What did he do? Pharisee. Pharisees are really, really knowledgeable about what? The law. What are the chances that Paul had all the law memorized? Because he was a Pharisee. 100%. He knew it all from front to backwards. He would do all sorts of crazy things. Are you ready? We have one major problem. Just as the law says that women should not speak, there's no law that says that. There's no law that says that. Let me read again. The women are to keep silent churches for they are not permitted to speak but are subject themselves just as the law also says. The person who's the expert on the law just said that the law says women shouldn't speak, but there is no law that says that. Uh-oh, what do we do? That'll be next week. So if our band can come up, please. Before our prayer partners come up, if you have been battling with any type of physical problem and you've gotten prayer, nothing has happened.